Hi everyone and welcome back to Edinburgh Film Podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Claire Boyle, who is a lecturer here at the Department of European Languages and Cultures at the University, and we discuss the work of Agnes Varda. Varda's career spans over an incredible 70 years, starting out as a part of the Nouvelle Vague in France and then moving on to making personal documentaries. Her work has so much to offer. And in this episode, we dive into the themes of feminism and social commentary in her filmmaking career and different approaches to cinema. Vada passed away last year in May at 90 years old, which is around the time we recorded this episode, but it seems like now is a good time to go back and reflect on Vada's work and pay tribute to an amazing artist. Hello, Claire. Hello, Kat. <laughs> nice well, to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak speaking to me today. Uh, you're welcome. So... Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do and what your academic background is? So I'm a lecturer in French and Francophone. Uh, Frank, I can't even say that properly. That's good <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lecturer in French and Francophone studies at the University of Edinburgh and I teach and research mostly these days in French cinema. And <clears throat> the films of Agnès Varda have particularly interested me in both my teaching and my research. So I've researched and published on some of Agnès Varda's work and uh, I also teach various of her films at undergraduate and postgraduate level. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, that's my mm. background in a nutshell and how it's perhaps relevant to talk about Agnès Varda today. Yeah, 100%. I also noticed that on your profile on the university website it says that you studied at Cambridge, is that right? That's correct. Yes. How was that experience? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, well, <laughs> I was there for a long time, so uh, to sum that up. Actually, uh, that's where I first got my academic introduction to film, um, mm. in the sense that I didn't actually formally study film when I was there, but you were able to go along to any lectures on any subject. Uh, you didn't have to be registered for a course in the way that our students have to be. So uh, I had an interest in film, but I didn't have room for that in my curriculum I went along to all the lectures for this fantastic course they used to have called um, something like Introduction to European Cinema <laughs> we might have got a similar course here and um, that's where I really got inspired to um, understand more about film from an academic viewpoint and I also had um, some excellent teaching from people who are themselves outstanding researchers in film although um, it wasn't until my master's level that I started to engage with that more it, you know, as a formal part of my learning. So so Cambridge was a really great place for me to be in lots of ways. I, I stayed there for seven years. I did a year abroad when I was an undergraduate and uh, I really enjoyed my time overall, but I was also quite pleased to move on when it came to that moment because you think you can stay in one place for too long. She says, looking at how long she's been at Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it was a really great place in lots of ways, including for starting me off sort of really thinking seriously about film and that, that was something I wanted to go further in my research with. But that's not what I did my PhD on. So mm-hmm. um, I was sort of uh, wanting to do it, but needing to make that transition mm-hmm. uh, after I left Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And so speaking about Varda, sort of more specifically how would you just in a few sentences how would you contextualize Varda in terms of where she started obviously I think a lot of people will know her as part of the Nouvelle Vague and the French New Wave but also obviously then she developed and I wonder if just sort of how how do you see her and how Mm. how would you describe her sure well she's a difficult figure to sum up in a way because she has such an extensive and lengthy career but I suppose what I'd say about Agnès Varda because I imagine not everybody listening to this will necessarily have come across her before in her films but what I'd say about her is she's this pioneering woman filmmaker uh, so a Belgian 
and French filmmaker. So she was Belgian-born, but spent almost all her life in France. And she uh, she comes into the French cinema uh, institution, if you like, at a time when it's overwhelmingly dominated by men. And she is one of a t- very tiny number of women who are successfully able to make films. And she didn't find it very easy. So she first made uh, a feature film that was uh, released in 1955. And she, she died earlier this year 2019 and that's her most recent film so she's had this enormously long career she's often associated as you said with the new wave and um, she definitely I think um, deserves her place uh, remembered as one of the prominent new wave film directors so make the people who are making films between roughly 1958 and 1963 people differ in their interpretations of when the new wave starts and stops since it's not a sort of formal card carrying movement but they you know, her films sort of go far beyond that, I would say, not just in terms of time, but also perhaps of scope. And, and one of the things that really strikes me, and I think really I notice this when I teach Vada's films, is how how warm-hearted and humanitarian uh, a filmmaker she is. And in that respect, I think she feels quite different uh, to some of the other very prominent French New Wave filmmakers like Alain René or Jean-Luc Godard, for example. And those are both filmmakers whose films I greatly admire and I, I get a lot out of watching them and I've, I've taught both of those filmmakers as well um, and, and have some uh, research interest in Godard. But they're, um, they're not filmmakers who come across as having the same sort of generosity and openness of spirit necessarily and they have they tend to come across as having you know a more sort of austere intellectual engagement as filmmakers um with the world and um that's just worlds apart from from what Vada does um and her filmmaking obviously continued after the new wave so she she tackles lots of subjects which you don't associate with French New Wave cinema particularly, I'm sure we'll talk about those. Um, so she's also a, a, a quite politically engaged filmmaker and not just at the time of the, the New Wave or at the time of 1968 when other French filmmakers were, but also much more recently. So so those, I think, are really important aspects of her filmmaking and, and things that I find myself really quite inspired by and make me want to watch her films and, and teach them. And things that seem to engage students as well when I teach her work. That is definitely the sense that I got um, the first time round I saw her films. And I really didn't know anything about her until about maybe six months ago um, because I knew obviously when she died it was a it was a, it was everywhere sort of mm. BFI and you know so all those sort of journals would talk about her and commemorate her, um, which was fantastic. And I thought, I know about her, and I know that she's a prominent figure, but I've never seen a film mm. from her or by her. And I watched a number of, of those, and I was just struck. I thought, mm. how could I not not have seen anything from her when she's such a brilliant director? Mm. But um, what strikes me as interesting is what you said about her being very sort of a heartwarming director, and that is something that you don't really get, and that's what I got the sense from her, that she doesn't really see herself as an as the sort of author mm. of of the 60s or sort of film author in general yeah because of her sort of how ground sort of grounded she is and and she feels so level with her audiences mm. that you feel like she would never put herself on a pedestal you know she she always wants you to be 
on the same level so that you can connect to her, so you can connect to her films. Yeah. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this. Well, I think you're absolutely right about what you say about her stance um, that she takes vis-à-vis her audience and vis-à-vis actually the subjects of her films um, as she matures into a documentary filmmaker. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting about her work um, is the way that she, she straddles that boundary which I think she doesn't really think of as, as a firm boundary between documentary and fictional feature films and um, she she does that in a way that not so many other directors were doing consistently throughout their career she did do that uh, for, for a very long time she sustained that interest in, in both uh, modes of filmmaking and I think as you say that does allow for her stance as an as an author, as a as a director, author to come through perhaps in a way that certain other film directors it might have been less clear um, how they related to the audience because they did maybe mostly fictional feature films where you don't tend to see the director on the screen. But I think you're right that there there is a a difference between perhaps her notion of what authorship means to her as a filmmaker compared to some of the other new wave directors. And it, it's an interesting point that you made, I think, in terms of thinking about what authorship means in the cinema and what it did mean to different filmmakers at different times. And that's a probably a whole different discussion um, not to get into today. But uh, I suppose often the concept of authorship in the cinema is associated with a sort of hierarchical uh, notion of, you know, you've got some genius director who, uh, because of their sort of wonderfully endowed brain kind of is entitled to deserves to stand above uh, perhaps their audience or stand above their interlocutors because they're somehow you know more privileged with insight so quite potentially quite elitist way of thinking about um, the cinema and filmmaking and I don't think it always has to come across in that way but you can see how in some cases um, that sort of notion has got attached to maybe especially French film directors and I'm, I'm not thinking necessarily amongst academic scholars or researchers or, or other people who make films but in the wider public perhaps people who go to cinema who've heard maybe film directors names without always having seen all their films and you might mention the name of say Godard or René to them and they're likely to put them in that bracket. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for Varda being an author was actually more about having control over the process of making a film, having full control. And that's also, to be fair, what a number of the other French New Wave film directors wanted as well. That's where they started from, the idea that they shouldn't be sort of subservient to a producer and they shouldn't be subservient to a screenwriter, but they should have full creative control. And so that's in some of the other theoretical writings you might find by people like François Truffaut. But I think with Varda, she, she sort of... I don't quite want to say limits, but she she concentrates on that notion of authorship, that she makes all the creative decisions. So she has this term in French called cinécriture, which is a sort of neologism, meaning cine-writing, I could translate it as. And uh, for her, cine-writing means approaching making a film like you'd approach writing a book, in the sense that if you're writing a book... Uh, you decide for yourself as the writer how the book is going to be structured, what the content's going to be, what words you're going to use. You edit it and you know chop it about if that needs to happen, and it's all under your control. And nobody else comes in and says, "Oh, well, you can't have you know five chapters. You've got to have four. But maybe they do it at a later stage, um, and you, you know, maybe tell them that that's not what you want to do after all, and your book gets published somewhere else. But you, that's um, that's something that isn't associated with, say, French filmmaking in the 1940s. And, you know, she was making her first film in 1955 before the new wave. So, so she has this um, sense then of um, all the stylistic decisions um, 
that go into making a film, being parts of being an author. So, so to be an author is to make those stylistic decisions about things like colour palette, about lighting, about you know, how sound is to be used or is going to be recorded, and uh, also all the decisions about the, sc- the screenwriting and so forth. So she, she doesn't work with other screenwriters. And I think that's her concept of what authorship is, rather than saying, that means I'm a genius and mm-hmm. you know, other people are somehow you know, apart from me or couldn't possibly understand what I'm trying to do. She doesn't, I think, have this um, heavily sort of theorised approach to filmmaking that seems sort of um, almost disturbingly prominent for for you know ordinary film audiences mm-hmm. yeah put it like that yeah absolutely and she did mention i think it was um in an interview from this year when um she was still alive and um she did mention that when she was doing was it um the beaches of agnes, agnes. so um she didn't mention that she was talking about mirrors and how she's using them in her films in general and what i really liked is when she said that, you know, I, I decided to make a film about myself, but the best I thought that the best way of doing this would be to look in the mirror, but actually point it to other people that are around me. Because in a sense, I think the way she explained it is that other people actually make up who you are. Yes. And that was a really beautiful thought. And I think it's that sort of exchange between, again, that sort of audience and herself and her films that you feel like, at least that's my sense when I watch her films, I feel like I'm part of it and she goes so much she manages to go so much deeper than any other director that I've seen before because there is no pretense there is no this sort of as you you were saying you know I am this genius above everyone else actually I'm, I'm as everyone else but I still make these particular decisions in my films and they are very you know especially when you look at um one things one does uh, the other doesn't and then um Le Bonheur, is that, do I, am I pronouncing that right? And um, Vagabond and all, all those, you can see the colour palette, the framing, and it's so particular to her. And so you can definitely class her um, or classify her as an auteur. But mm. it's just that the way she talks about herself is just so, so selfless and just so open and very sort of... I can't think of a different word than normal (laughs) (laughs) um well i suppose she she comes across as being a huge democrat and um i suppose the visage village film perhaps illustrates that really well um and i would say that yes i absolutely agree again with what you've said in terms of how she has very particular ideas about how she wants to make her films she she really does and and she goes into i mean it's fascinating watching some of the presentations that she's done on on this massive box set that she did uh, a few years before she died which contains well all of her works as it was at that time so um <coughs> complete up until 2008 uh, that is um a work which has lots of um bonus material in it where she explains a bit about how she's made all her films and what was in her mind as she was doing them and it's fascinating um watching her talk about that and some of that material or similar material i should say not identical but similar material is in, in the very last film that she did vada Paranez, uh, so vada by agnes and that um shows how very precise and detailed and meticulously well thought through and conceived all her films are how careful her thinking was but as you say it doesn't translate into 
the interactions she has with other people, particularly in the documentary films, um, she she doesn't sort of overload those encounters with all her you know, philosophy of filmmaking. She relates to the people that she meets on a very egalitarian mm-hmm. basis, and uh, and is you know also I think as she goes through her career, you can see in her films she gets better and better at, at you know, the listening to mm-hmm. other people and interacting with them. Um, so. But it's already there in some of the earlier films. So the Black Panthers film that she made is quite an interesting one. She did mention that again in one of her later interviews, where she said that you know with time she just got better at listening, and so her work sort of changed around that a little bit. Yeah. Um, she also mentioned that um, she feels happy most of the time, which I thought was so humble and sort of she she just looks like she's so grateful for the life that she had and mm. even in terms of her process she kind of said well you know if, if you don't feel like making a film or you maybe just don't have the money to make it you're not going to push it you'll go and wait for it to come and mm. for, for the right time and then there was one sen- sentence as well uh, where she said i'm just you know i feel like i'm lucky to to not be dead yet <laughs> that, that is that is amazing to find that contentment in your work and don't sort of push in in a sense where you kind of I think you see that a lot um in young directors today where they're sort of pushing for the next big thing I feel like with Varda she was just sort of waiting for a good cause for a good Mm. reason to make a film if it is about something that she can relate to yeah instead of just like let's make a film because they can or because I I am a director you know yeah I really appreciate that because she is I I like how you described of uh, you described her at the beginning of like she's this tiny woman in a world surrounded by men and she is really tiny like physically yes. really really tiny <coughs> so there's something really beautiful about her just sort of bumbling around through life it <laughs> seems like you know well I wouldn't quite say bumbling <laughs> like, there is a direction you know she, she does yes. have ambition and she wants to do things and I think as well I mean the comments that you make are about you know from your research on this uh, you know I recognize those that's that's definitely the sort of thing she was saying at the same time i think those are the sorts of remarks she started saying when she was older and perhaps mm-hmm. able to have a greater amount of equanimity because she had made a lot of films i think in the early career i mean she she shows herself as being quite driven in the early career because <clears throat> in her early career you know the new wave hadn't yet happened when she made la pointe court she's one of the the um instigators of the new wave in that respect and it was a film that was made that um was in a way quite daring because at that time in French cinema um, there were various laws and um, rules about filmmaking, uh, some of which came because of um, the existence of trade unions which had struck certain you know, bargains and agreements about how films should be made, so in terms of say things like the number of personnel that should be working on a film crew and, and so forth. And you also had to have an authorization from the state in order to to have a to make a film and to get it released publicly, so that needed to be officially authorized. La Pointe Court wasn't officially authorized, and she just went ahead and made it anyway. And she didn't actually abide by all the the, the rules and laws in in place about how you assemble a film crew. And she did it on a you know, reduced set of personnel, basically. Um, so she uh, so in that way, she she didn't sort of roll over and accept things as they were. She she obviously wanted to make the film and she found her way of making the film and it it had to be authorised after it had been made. So it, instead of being authorised as it was supposed to be at the time, before it was finished, it was only authorised after and that actually held up the, the process of its cinematic release. So, so I think she shows a certain amount of determination to do what she's doing um, but also absolute sort of belief in herself and um, there's... 
uh, I think as well, you know, some of the some of the films that she made actually weren't great successes, and she did have some uh, episodes in her career where perhaps you know films weren't well received, and she does talk about those a bit, um, and they're films that I guess don't tend to get remembered quite so much and perhaps one of the most prominent uh, examples of that would be a film that she made is actually to commemorate the um, centenary of cinema and it was called Les Sentiers Une Nuit de Simon Cinema made in 1995 and it was a really big budget film so by this time she was a very established filmmaker she'd made Sans Trois Ni Lois or Vagabond as its English title is um, she'd already made that film and she'd, um, she'd received international recognition for that film and she had uh, become this you know, major figure in French cinema. So she was able to get an enormous budget to make a, a film sort of commemorating 100 years of cinema. And she got a lot of film stars like Catherine Deneuve to come in and do cameos in the film. But it actually was not a box office success. So she, she didn't always have everything her own way. And she did have... Um, she did have tribulations. She also had tribulations sometimes about finding money to finance her films. But as you say, I think it's the way she reacted to that, that she seems to have taken a kind of, well, what will be will be attitude and tried to find other ways of um, you know, getting around problems um, rather than sort of throwing up her hands and simply saying, oh, it's terrible because I can't, yeah. can't get the money for this film or... What have you? And Visage Village, the the last but one film, um, Faces Places, uh, was crowdfunded, which is also an interesting thing to find uh, a very established film director doing. Yeah, and so in terms of her work in general, I sort of when I was preparing for this episode, I, I did kind of think of her, and this is just uh, as an example. I'm pretty sure you cannot just say this is the only thing that she did, but in a way, I did think of her as in sort of the three ways that she developed or the sort of themes that she explored as a filmmaker so on one hand I think she was quite a realist in films like Clear from 5 to 7 or Vagabond, Vagabond. Uh, then as a feminist or you could say activist even but that I think really really came through in One Sings the Other Dozen and La Bonne even and then Vard obviously has a documentary so she has a huge career of just making documentaries and I actually I wasn't a massive fan of her documentaries I do I do have to push myself to watch them <laughs> but um, there are so many of them and yeah. it does seem like she was just and also what we what you mentioned before that there wasn't really a clear boundary between a documentary and fiction for her so to move from one to the other probably seemed like a very sort of natural choice even mm. um so do you want to kind of talk about um in terms of these themes about her films and do, would you agree with that classification as so well? so your classification is sort of a realist a feminist oh, and a and, uh, documentarist yes absolutely and i think Sometimes it's difficult perhaps to say that a particular film fits only one of those brackets rather than another. Um, so I think we can see feminism, for example, coming through in both fictional feature films, um, including Saint-Trois-Nilois or Vagabond and Le Bonheur, um, as well as Cléo de saint Cassette or Cléo from 5 to 7, uh, as well as in the documentary films. And uh, you know, for her, making films, for example, about, her, about domestic space, about your locality, um, it's a sort of implicitly feminist thing to do because I suppose that uh, feminist thought generally says that uh, women tend to be associated with a domestic sphere and because that's associated with women, its importance in you know, the wider scheme of things tends to be 
underplayed, underrepresented. And one of the documentaries that Varda made uh, was a documentary called Daguerreotype, which is um, a clever play on words. She started her career, as you probably know, as a photographer. Mm-hmm. So she didn't start out. She wasn't a trained filmmaker. She, she went from photography, professional photography, into uh, filmmaking. So obviously the Daguerreotype is a an allusion to the history of photography as a form. It's also an allusion to the street that she used to live on, Rue Daguerre in Paris, um, obviously named after Daguerre, um, <coughs> inventor of photography. But the Daguerreotype is a documentary where she she made it when she was pregnant with her second child, and she decided that she didn't want to kind of you know go off to the other side of the world or even to the other side of France to make a film. And she wanted, therefore, to make a film in her own locality and she did she made a film about the street the, the rue daguerre where she lived and she worked so she had a house and she also um used that house as, as, her, as her studio as well some of her films are partly filmed there or in the courtyard of the house for example and she did her editing there and then when she was alive they had a shop as well um there so she she made this film about the the various uh, shops and shopkeepers on that street because when she was there in 1976 it was a street full of shops so she went around filming this documentary about all the all the shopkeepers and their work and the clients that they had and, and some of these some of these people the, the shopkeepers or the clients are quite eccentric and she, she just goes in and talks to them and it's you know it's a very sort of low key low scale thing but it's quite fascinating I mean partly because you know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't going around to shops in 1976. There's a whole sort of history of uh, shows you how the sort of cultural uh, the culture around shopping and, and getting your food because a lot of these are things like you know bakers um, has changed. So there's a sort of certain historical um, fascination that it has. But uh, it's a, a film that um, is also very sort of explicitly. She says during the film, you know, she she kind of wants to have a sort of an umbilical cord. She puts it leading back to her home, and she she use this visual sort of metaphor for that so um so yes she also also has another film which is only a short film called réponse de femme so women reply in english which um dates from 1975 so at the height of the second wave of the feminist movement um in france and elsewhere and at a time actually when in france abortion was still illegal and contraception had um, been uh, also uh, not legal for unmarried women. So there are very sort of specific feminist um, aspirations and goals that, that feminists generally want to realise because they, they realise that France is you know, behind other countries in terms of women's rights over their bodies. And she makes a short film about that. Um, so so definitely feminist. Um, talking about realist... Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, some of the documentary filmmaking, especially in the earlier part of her career, I think is clearly driven by a, a desire to document um, in, in in perhaps a more uh, sort of straightforward way than, than her later documentaries seem to be. Um, but I, I suppose I'm thinking of a film like L'Opéra Mouffe, um, which is another short film she made in 1958 that was made. And it's made um, in a particular... Again, street in Paris, actually, not Rue Daguerre where she lived, but a, a different part of Paris. But it's a street that she was in, you know, intimately um, connected with uh, and knew very well. And she, and it's again another street where there were street markets and shops. And she decided to film passers by, and um, it's 
in the way it's shot, it's actually reminiscent if you've seen Cleo de Saint Cassette or Cleo from Five to Seven, which I think you have. Some of those sort of street scenes that are filmed in Cleo, uh, which actually also you know have a documentary aspect to them, despite the fact that's a fictional film. Well, that sort of filmmaking is going on in L'Opéra Mouffe, and uh, she you can see that she's. She's sort of wanting to record what's there and she has this sort of fascination for people's faces and facial expressions and their gestures. So um, so she's partly sort of documenting gestures. So she'll document in that film, uh, L'Opéra Mouffe, you'll see um, you know, half a dozen or so <coughs> successive shots of people uh, wiping tears from their eyes or wiping their nose, but they've all got a different way of doing it. And she just sort of stands in the street and you get these sort of medium close-up shots of you know, old woman after old man after other women sort of wiping their face. And um, so that documentary interest for her, I think, is is about uh, documenting quite ordinary things, which fits in with something you said earlier, just ordinary everyday things. Um, and then you will, you know, find that say something like the Black Panthers film is uh, maybe a, a more clearly politically engaged film, not necessarily just about you know everyday life, but uh, about the political issue of the day. And she was also involved. Um, in the omnibus um, film from 1967, so made by a, a collective of um, filmmakers called Luan du Vietnam, <coughs> so Far From Vietnam, which uh, was about um, the, the the war in Vietnam, which had before been a French colony, so there was a sort of sense of French culture um, and intellectuals that you know Vietnam should be a concern to the French um, because it had recently been their colony and because of the war um, with the US that was going on there in the 1960s. So she, she does have this, um, I suppose, larger scale um, interest too in her documentary, but a lot of her documentary filmmaking, I'd say, is about sort of documenting maybe the ordinary, everyday transactions of life or gestures of, of humans and... And sometimes she'll use that to move on to exploring larger questions about the, you know, the organisation of the economy or you know, the political priorities in a particular country at a given time. So you see that in Les Glaneurs et la Glaneurs, so the Gleaners and I, for example, uh, or again in Visage Village, actually. Uh, so where you, you start to see a, an interest in you know, capitalism and what, what the current form of capitalism is, is doing to economies, to, to rural livelihoods, to... Uh, to to working people mm-hmm. um, and to people who could be called an underclass, and then there was a third. So we talked documentary, cinema, realism, and um, feminism. Feminism. Mm-hmm. Well, realism, I suppose. Of um, yeah, I've not talked about that one yet. Mm-hmm. And um, so with that, as I've mentioned, some of the fictional feature films have aspects of documentary into them. But yes, that there is a clear vein in her work of you know realist. Um, yet fictional filmmaking and in Saint-Trois ni Loire or Vagabond you see that coming through perhaps that's the strongest case of that um, that was the, the film which um, was um, decorated uh, with the uh, lion yeah the, the golden lion Lion d'Or um, and there I, I think that's that's still quite a, a powerful film because it's trying to it's trying to use a sort of realist approach to um, to parts of life which I guess we don't tend to see in fictional films very much, which is the abject, the the life of a, a marginal fictional protagonist who's who, who does involuntarily um, 
fall into abjection or exist in a state of abjection. She's homeless. She's a vagabond. She's um, she's going around the country and sleeping rough and you know, isn't clean and you know, turns up in villages dirty, dishevelled, smelly and becomes something of a pariah because of her appearance and her presentation in that way. And she's also, as the, the French title makes clear, you know, lawless. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't necessarily want to or intend to obey social conventions so even when sometimes people help her it doesn't necessarily lead to her be you know tugging her fall up with gratitude she mm. will still potentially be you know impertinent or disrespectful to I, them i remember feeling very strongly about that film because i i had a visceral reaction to her character and to the whole film i think because it was so realist and realistic that i i really struggled to finish it because i found her so Annoying, really, you know, to put it simply, um, specifically w because of what you're saying about how ungrateful she seems. Mm. But I think it's clearly just because I'm so not used to watching a film about people like that. And it's something that you just don't get to see or you wouldn't choose necessarily to see yeah. in your day daily life, which only says, you know, about the privilege that I have really in my life. But it is, especially I think in comparison to her earlier films, uh, sort of earlier feature films, um, I think because they are so beautiful just to look at, so in yes. terms of you know visuals, and then you go move on to Vagabond and it's kind of in your face. And I'm not saying that it's not visually beautiful or stunning, but the subject of that film is just something completely different. And yes. it, that really threw me. And I remember being a bit angry, I thought, with the film, but I think essentially I was angry with myself because I couldn't stand it. And yes. I was like, what? So it definitely did something to the way I looked at it and the way I was thinking and yeah. so that's sort of like poking of like can can you you know can you bear it can you bear it and it's just sort of like every time the character does something you know where you, you sort of don't necessarily expect and she's more ungrateful she does something worse she, she keeps drinking that kind of thing you feel like god damn it what's wrong with you you know why yes. wouldn't you just get better but I think that's the whole point of the film which is you know, retrospectively looking back at that experience, I think that's why it's stuck in my head for such mm. a long time because it really makes you think and feel a certain yeah. way, even if it's not necessarily good, you know, yeah. comfortable and squishy and nice, you know. Well, yeah, it's, it's a film where, you know, unusually, you've got a very clear central protagonist and we are, I think, still used, when we watched films, to expecting to be able to identify in a positive way with a central protagonist. And yes, we, we know that there are villains in films. You know, we, we expect it to be bad guys. Um, but we kind of expect, if there is a bad guy, that they're probably not going to be the focus and centre of the film and that there'll be a, a sort of compensating presence, whereas she is the main character the others are clearly all secondary protagonists to her and yet in in many ways she's not easy to like or to sympathize with when she you know is abusive to people who have actually helped her in some way and i mean the abuse, the abuse that she receives is far worse i mean there, there is a scene of rape um but she or a scene that connotes that she's going to get raped but um she is you know ungrateful she is messy she is vand a vandal as well and takes advantage of, of people's um gestures towards her sometimes so yeah i think it's um it is a film that sticks in your mind and uh, i mean what you said about the use of 
of colour and, and the style of it and, and that you found it a less beautiful film. I think that goes sort of hand in hand with subject matter. And I think that's exactly the sort of thing that Varda mm. you know, so, sought to do in her fictional feature films particularly was to devise a kind of mise-en-scene which would reflect the themes of the film. And so in, in Vagabond, in Saint-Ouen-Illois, it's there's a very clear sort of dominance of the colour brown, which is obviously the colour of lots that's abject. And she, uh, that's not accidental, I'm yeah. sure. And then that's obviously a complete contrast to something that like Le Bonheur, much earlier film. So that one's, a, I don't know, what, I'd be interested in what you think of Le Bonheur. That's such a bright colour palette in that film. And I think sometimes it, Sometimes it uh, leads viewers, uh, other students that I've taught this film to or discussed this film with, they've sometimes sort of been led to believe that perhaps the film is trying to push a certain message, a certain don't rock the boat type message, and have felt quite angry at the film because they see it as being almost the opposite of feminist. But what did you feel, think of that film? I felt, I can definitely relate to that, yeah, I, I felt... Um that I was surprised first of all because I think it was one of the first films that I saw from her and I was stunned by the visuals again mm. by the colours and how bright it was but equally I was kind of thinking especially about um, the main character the male main character the way he was sort of exchanging one woman for the other was a bit strange to me but I think it kind of it's not about that I think it's not really that simple so I love that film because of the colours and because of the sort of <laughs> I'm, again, I'm going to use a horrific stereotype, but it, it felt very French to me in a, in the sort of sexual freedom and the way that it, it, the film didn't necessarily question the male character and why he was into both women. But then the fact that one of them potentially, we don't really know what happens to... Um, she dies. She dies, mm. yes, but I think the circumstances <coughs> under which she, she, she dies is something to just sort of, you know, it just leaves you with that and that that's it. And then by the end of it, you, I think it's the same scene from the beginning of the film, isn't it? But with a different woman, yes. if I remember correctly. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I did find it problematic because I did feel at times that where I was like, this is not really a feminist film. It doesn't seem feminist to me. Mm. But I don't think she would want to... She, she would make a film that isn't feminist. So I don't think... You know, there were moments like that, but I, on the whole, I don't think that's what she was trying to say. Yeah. I think with that film, and maybe this fits in with a more general sort of stance um, that y- you can find in some of her filmmaking, it does evolve, you know, over time, clearly. And I think she perhaps becomes a little bit more didactic, um, even if it's implicitly didactic. So, you know, with the Vagabond film, for example, Saint-Ouane Loire, um, she doesn't ever... Well, it's a fictional feature film, but y- there's no character that sort of comes on in that film and says, isn't it terrible how we treat homeless people? Mm-hmm. Isn't it terrible how we kind of basically dehumanise them? But that's kind of what the film ends up having you think, I think, mm-hmm. um, because you perhaps do um, at sometimes find the main protagonist dislikable, but you also, um, well, you, you're working back from the death of that protagonist. The film starts with her being found dead in a ditch, to use a topical phrase. And she is... um, Then Varda is then sort of reconstructing the time that's led up to that death. And you can see how in the... um, in the intercalated shots where there are sort of secondary protagonists who address the camera directly and talk about their involvement with her, you can kind of see how 
you know, none of them have really done all that much to help. So there's maybe with one exception, um, who is the lecturer who who does actually kind of take her in and feed her and so forth. But you know, most of them have done very little really. Um, so you know, the film ends up indirectly, I think, getting you to question how you, as a member of the audience, think about homeless people. And I think that there's something maybe similar going on with Le Bonheur. So the title means happiness. Um, and I think with that one, the question it's made me want to ask is, you know, whose happiness? Because the guy seems happy enough until, yeah. you know, until you say woman number one um, is dead, perhaps. But he, you know, he seems happy. And it's almost sort of, sort of Disney-fied happiness because he has his almost a preternatural grin on his face. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he does seem to be happy enough. And... I suppose the the thing is that uh, that film as well, perhaps we have to remember that it's an old film itself and um, just trying to remember. So 1965 was when that was released. And the kind of life of his wife, so the first woman, woman number one, whereby she she does the housework, but (laughs) her life revolves around sort of doing the housework and getting his dinner ready for him um, when he comes home and, you know, doing the the ironing and what have you. Um, I think in 1965 that may not have seemed especially spectacular as a representation of a woman's life, and there would have been probably a lot of women who would have had that experience. So um, in some ways I think it's not sort of jumping out at us it's deliberately not jumping out at us with anything very provocative but then as you say woman number one sort of you know faithfully does executes her role as housewife and then is supplanted by woman number two because you know his bonheur his happiness seems to involve him you know going off with woman number two who as you say bears a strong resemblance in, to woman number one especially in the final sequence of the film so um, I think we end up sort of asking ourselves well you know woman number one has sort of you know fulfilled a social contract as it were she has it's not as if you know you see them having sort of huge rows because she's run off and slept with somebody else or spent all his money or anything like that it's just that somehow for reasons we can't quite determine he moves his affections elsewhere and that's the end Mm. of of well, her life for, mm-hmm. for woman number one, the wife. Literally, and Yeah, yeah le- literally. And yeah. as you say, there is this question, we're not told that she dies by her own hand, but we maybe strongly suspect that she does. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're left sort of wondering what happiness looks like and whether happiness gets meted out equally. Because then we also, of course, wonder what's going to happen with woman number two. As you say, the, the film ends with this shot where woman number two ends up looking... She's she The mise-en-scene places her in almost identical... Um, shot to one we've seen earlier in the film but with the the, the wife the first woman so we're sort of wondering what lies in store for her mm-hmm. so for me Le Bonheur is actually quite an ironic film but sort of, sort of you were talking earlier about Saint-Ouane du Vagabond as pushing at you sort of you know trying to trying to provoke you as if it's sort of hitting you with a twig or something and I think that that's also what happiness that film is doing but not in a sort of really didactic way. I think it's more way. subtle I think, I think it's specifically because of the visuals and because it's so striking with the colours and yes. it, I mean the sort of pastoral element the yeah. outdoors I mean the gorgeous yeah. you know the yeah. gorgeous sunlit but shots of it's the almost like that is supposed to um, be almost like a mist that you know, it's pushed onto you so that you don't notice or you don't think about the bad stuff. And as you, it's specific, specifically what you, what you were saying just now about 
well, whose happiness is it really, you know? And I think that's so fascinating about it that on the whole and from on a surface level, it's exactly, it's a beautiful film about happiness, about one man's happiness and about him going from one woman to another. The, the transition is so smooth, you wouldn't even question it twice, you know? And the ending is so sort of artificially beautiful and perfect mm. that you can go away from that film thinking this is lovely but it's not <laughs> and I think that's the subtlety of the film where it actually there are, there are problems and there are as you say there is there is ir- ir- irony to it but it's about maybe whether you notice it or not yes. I mean I don't want I don't want to say that uh, but you know no no I think you're absolutely right and I think some of the reception of that film shows that it, it wasn't necessarily particularly well understood when it came out and I think it's one of the films where you know some of the some of the critics who, who've written on Anya Savada will, will say that one has perhaps not been quite so successful because it was almo- perhaps almost too clever. I mean, I suppose the, you know, the sort of sunlit outdoor shots, it's sort of depicting a kind of pastoral idyll, making everything seem all very natural. But then I suppose, it, as you say, it's actually almost um, overblown. It's almost too beautiful, perhaps. Yeah. And of course, you, know, out, you can make an outdoors look gorgeous depending on the light you're using and the film that would have been shot on film uh, that you're using. And there are effects you can do to uh, to highlight that and saturate those those colours in, in the processing of the film or the choice of the film in the first place for the film stock you're using. And uh, you can you can sort of almost uh, overemphasise the so-called naturalness of it. And I think that there is a, a quite subtle way in which you could read the the colour palette and the uh, the sort of stunning luminance of of, the, of much of that film, or the exteriors particularly of that film, as as being things that almost sort of push you into thinking, okay, it's almost too natural, it's almost too perfect. It's it's almost like you know, it's a Jaws or something. Where you get the kind of perfect calm yeah. <laughs> before before the fin appears. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So uh, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I, it's a very interesting film, but I, I think it's perhaps I think the other one that you mentioned in terms of um, realism uh, and feminism, which was uh, L'une chante et l'autre pas, so one sings and the other doesn't, is I think that's a film which probably makes its agenda clearer, and you kind of yeah. know what you're dealing with. More. Exactly. Yeah, it's almost like you know, if if you if you were to have a scale, then you could start with Le Bonheur and then go on to which is kind of subtle and then you move on to one things the other doesn't which is a bit more um straightforward with what it's trying to do and then you move on to vagabond that's just you know stabbing you right in the heart Mm. Um, and i think it's quite amazing to see that progression um and i think it's the same with visuals you know you go something from, from very vibrant to maybe a bit something more subtle and then something very dark and yeah. gritty, mm. um, and I lo- and I loved it. And and it's just three films from her career, you know, mm. across what twenty years. Um, so, just in terms of um, if you were to recommend um, Father mm. to anyone, um, or there was some someone who was interested but didn't really know where to start, what do you think would be the best way of of you know immersing yourself into Varda's work? That's a tricky one. Um, I mean, in some ways, an obvious place to start might be with her very last film, the Vada Parhanyes film, Vada by Agnes, except I wouldn't actually recommend that one. I, I went to watch it and thought it was you know, a very interesting film, but I think it's actually one to come to maybe after you've seen other things that she's done. So if you're sort of wanting a recommendation for a film, I think that might make people think, oh, yes, she, you know, she is a filmmaker worth watching. I would actually maybe say from her early films Cleo de Saint-Cassette, Cleo from 5 to 7 because um, I think in some ways that's probably more successful at showing up uh, say the 
you know, the, the issues that women might face in heterosexual relationships about achieving happiness, about the, um, but so, you know, it, it does that perhaps better in some ways than, than um, Le Bonheur, but it's also got this really intriguing kind of documentary element in the sense of all the shots of the streets of Paris and the passers-by. So it's a black and white film uh, released in 1962, so it's, a, it's coming towards the end of a new wave. Um, so I would I would probably say that one, or another one I actually might recommend because it gives an overview of her career and perhaps gives you quite a quick introduction to what seems to be at stake all the way through Vada's filmmaking career. It would be Les Plages d'Agnès, The Beaches of Agnes. Also because it, it it's quite good I think at getting across uh, the humour, the sort of fun loving aspect. Um, you know, it starts. She she sort of makes an impromptu joke in the first scene of the film because, as you said, it starts off with with mirrors on a beach, and she does these installations. And one, it's, it's a windy beach, and, and her scarf ends up blowing over her face, which is obviously not ideal if you're trying to make a film about yourself with yourself in it, and then your face is covered up. And and she kind of makes a joke about that. So you kind of get right from the beginning this sense of she's a she's a warm-hearted person who who. Uh, responds with spontaneity and equanimity to to things, but it also um, it does trace more or less chronologically all the different stages of her career and contextualizes an awful lot of her films, and you know does it uh, in a I think a very engaging way, and it's also it's visually interesting how it's put together. Um, which are you know, more visually interesting, actually, in some ways, than Vada Pahan, yes, which is made when she was already very ill and very old, and you know, ten years later than uh, Les Plages d'Agnès. When The Beaches of Agnes was made, she was still you know, mobile enough and well enough, I think, to make a film which she could inject with the force of her personality. And I think, unfortunately, by the time of Vada Pahan, yes, I think she wanted to make it to sort of set the record straight or to, to say everything she wanted to say, but it's... It, it's the film of a, an elderly, very frail woman who's very, in fact she died before it was released. So mm. uh, it's um, it's slightly more sober, um, mm. slightly drier, I would say. But this sort of sense of fun and the sense of sheer achievement of, of her filmmaking career, I think, comes through quite well in Le Plage d'Agnès because it, um, the Beaches of Agnes, because it contains excerpts from so many of her films. I think, I think actually pretty much every single one. Um, so that that also is showcasing her documentary filmmaking, or if, for more you know the humanitarian aspect, maybe the Gleaners and I, the Gleaners and the Gleaners. Yeah, Claire, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It was an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Oh, well, glad to have a chance. I do like talking about Agnes Varda. And, um, sorry, you probably found you couldn't shut me up. <laughs> no, no, it was amazing. It was amazing because it is in it. No, I don't say rarely does it feel like I don't don't want the other person to shut up, but <laughs> it is rare that it, it just feels like there's so much to talk about, but unfortunately we are running out of time, so I'll have to cut it for now. But thank you so much, it was it was amazing talking to you. Oh, thank you very much, and I hope uh, you will have a chance to do something similar some other time. Absolutely. Okay. Thank, thank you. you.